The reading tonight is taken from Romans chapter 7 on page 152 in the New Testament section of the Church Bibles. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only during that person's lifetime? Thus, a married woman is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is discharged from the law concerning the husband. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. In the same way, my friends, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive, so that we are slaves, not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. What then should we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, You shall not covet... But sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and just and good. Did what is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin, working death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual. I am of the flesh, sold into slavery, under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good, but in fact, I no longer I, but do it. It is but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I but do it, but but that that sin that dwells within me. 
So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with my mind I am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh I am a slave to the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Good evening. Good, glad you can hear me. Um, I'm so pleased to talk over this chapter with you this evening. Um, It's a long reading, um, but I want to talk about just a couple of key points to help us understand it, so we can all take away one or two things each, um, to help us broaden, deepen, or enrich our Christian lives this coming week. I'm not going to go into the theological wrestling about some of the more controversial verses. Um, I can leave that to others at a later date. But there's a really valuable message here to unpack about how we can respond in a Christian way to our own nature, our own instinctive thoughts or our actions, and our own inner selves. So here you are on a Sunday evening at the end of October. What else could you be doing right now? You could be watching TV. You could be having Sunday dinner. You could be preparing for work or whatever it is you're going to be doing next week. But instead, you've come to worship Jesus. You want to glorify him with your lives. You want to be changed to become more like him. So much so that you've come here tonight. Thanks for coming and thanks be to God for all the work that he's doing in all of our lives. So Romans 7 starts with Paul talking about the law. He assumes that we know the law. The law, he says in verse 1, only has authority over us as long as we live. He's speaking to a people who would have been well-versed in the law. They would have been knowledgeable about the religious laws that govern their way of life. And he's talking about marriage as an example. I don't think he's saying this to repeat that command, but to remind them of what the law is like for them. He's saying, you know the law, like it says that someone is bound in marriage for life unless their spouse dies, Something it is to them clear, obvious, and, for them, uncontroversial. I mostly like rules. As I'm getting older, I think I'm seeing the benefits of following them more and more. What about you? Are you a stickler for keeping the rules at all times? Or do you sometimes let yourselves break them just this once? Or no one will see? Or even to do something to give yourself a little bit of an advantage? I'm not talking here about legal laws, and I don't think Paul was either, but rules that in some cases are context-bound. For example, in the school I work at, we've got a very clear behaviour policy. It helps the children understand how to behave. I've worked in schools where that's not the case, and it can be an absolute nightmare. No one understands what's allowed or not, whether there should be a consequence for poor behaviour. And kids being kids... They'll just try and push the boundaries more and more and spot inconsistencies to make your life harder simply for their own enjoyment and fun. I think all teachers and people who work with young people can relate to that. But it is a problem when no one understands why the rule is there in the first place. Our rules at school are what we call values-driven. So where there's a lack of respect or tolerance or cooperation, a consequence is given 
In some schools, there are so many rules that children don't know when and how they should follow them, and teachers don't know how to apply them, because people don't know why. But however they behave in school, the children know that when they leave the building, these rules no longer apply. But the hope is that some of the values behind the rules have rubbed off, that they'll be as polite and friendly to adults in the community as they are to us in school, that they'll be as respectful and considerate to others when there's no longer a teacher watching. However, I don't know about you, but I find it hard to follow rules when I don't know why. For example, there's a, there's a path I cycle on frequently down by Forge Dam, which has lovely tarmac, and the other way is rough and muddy. Yet there's a sign on the path that should say no cycling, and someone, definitely not me, many years ago probably, has crossed out the no I think I understand why they decided a, lot a long time ago not, to, not to, encourage, to encourage cyclists to use the muddy path. But surely if we consider it, if we slow down and let walkers pass and not behave responsibly, irresponsibly, it's fine. Or should we just always follow the rules regardless? Every time I break that rule, please do feel free to challenge me later on, I do so knowing deep down that the sign should really say no cycling. And I'm probably doing something a little bit wrong. There's no one watching. I'm following the spirit of the rule, perhaps, by being considerate and getting off and pushing around people. I'm not a rule breaker. I'm a good person. Or am I? I think lots of people in our society today see religion as a kind of transaction. They might think, I'm a good person. I do more good things than bad things. Therefore, if there is a God, and when I die, he will see that, and he'll see the balance of good outweigh the balance of bad, and therefore I'll be let in heaven. But as Christians, we know that that's not good enough. In verse 7, Paul talks about the sin of coveting. He wouldn't know what it was had the law not revealed it to him. Sin, he says, working within him, produces all kinds of covetous desire. The trouble with coveting is that it can lead to so much more sin. You covet your neighbour's material possessions. could be their car, their lovely home, their fashionable clothes or their fancy holidays. So it awakens, as Paul says, the sinful nature. You might be tempted to steal. You might be dishonest. You might lie to gain that possession or the advantage that helps you get it. And the media is full of it. Influencers are paid millions to promote products that probably don't work and many have been found out for using technology to support that lie but millions of people still buy it because they covet and they don't know it. As Christians, we're so blessed to have this chapter to remind us that we can know it and to do something about it. But coveting and other sin does something else to us. It gradually gnaws away at our soul and it awakens that sinful nature. Sin sprang to life and I died, Paul says. Not literally, but the wages of sin, he writes elsewhere, is death. What's happening here is this sinful nature, awakened, controlling, angrily possessing us, is wrenching us away from the presence of God. It's interrupting and trying to cancel out our relationship with God, ripping us away from the light to cast us into darkness. Ultimately, trying to cancel out the life we've received by, from Jesus by his sacrifice for us. Coveting is instinctive. It's natural. It's normal, but it's not right. It's sinful. 
It's a lot easier to say don't murder or don't steal, but it's almost impossible to cancel out our instinctive desires that come from our heart. All sin creates a duality within our character. On one hand, we're trying to be the good Christian that honours God, follows Jesus as our example, keeps all his rules. And on the other, we're basic. We have a sinful nature that, if unchecked, will take over and lead to ruin. Incrementally, step by step, we are slowly taken over by that sinful nature if we let it. In verse 14, Paul says he is sold as a slave to sin. As as a slave, Paul can't break free of his sinful nature. He's possessed by it. C.S. Lewis said that sin takes over gradually. He says, perhaps my bad temper or jealousy are gradually getting worse, so much so that it will be hardly noticeable in 70 years, but in the course of a million years, it will be absolute hell. This is one of the great advantages of living in the Christian faith. We've been given an understanding that, yes, we have a sinful nature, Yes, it's bad. So bad that Jesus died died for us to save us from it. But we have a way out of this slavery. In verse 15 and 16, Paul Paul says that what he wants to do, he doesn't do. And what he doesn't want to do, what he hates, he does do. He then says the sinful nature wages war against himself making him to do what he doesn't want to do. He's a prisoner of the law of sin. He goes on to say, what a wretched man I am. Hang on a minute. You might be thinking, especially if this chapter is fairly new to you, isn't Paul a saint? Isn't he someone who's elevated above us in some kind of special Christian way, who brushes off the temptations, the sinful thoughts, the triggers for sin, and always acts in a holy way? Paul isn't us. He's special, isn't he? He's so much so that God trusted him to write a large part of the Bible. Here he is saying he gives in to temptation. There's some debate here about whether Paul is talking about, what he, what, about life before his conversion or after it. But as I said, I'll leave the theological debates for someone else. But the translation does use the present tense, so we can read it to mean that these struggles are ongoing for Paul. I think it's encouraging and it's humbling to see how Paul has admitted and shared his struggles to the Christians he's writing to, and for us. Even the most special Christians still struggle, just like us. And if they struggle, we, can, we struggle too. And so we can carry on sinning, not be too worried about it, right? Well, no, it's not like that at all. Let's talk about human nature for a minute. In my job, I teach A-level psychology, A big part of the course is understanding the explanations various psychologists have given to human behaviour and the causes and the consequences. And I'm struck by the astute awareness that Paul has to the way psychologists came up with nearly 2,000 years later as to how humans process and deal with their thoughts. Paul's talking about a duality, a battle within his mind between the sinful nature and the law. An important part of therapy is getting people to categorise and order their thoughts into positive and negative, helpful, unhelpful, realistic and unrealistic. And that's what Paul's doing here. He understands that there are other things that he ought to do and those that he ought not to do. And he understands he is deeply tempted to give in to this sinful nature, which keeps him prisoner. 
Having this self-awareness is a big part in the battle in any attempt to restructure our thought patterns and change the negative into positive and try to improve our outlook or our view of the world. Freud talked about it like this. He says our personality was divided between an id being, for better, want a better explanation, our sinful nature. But then this is supposed to be counterbalanced by something called the superego, which acts like a chattering conscience. You may have heard of the analogy of having an angel and a devil on your shoulder telling you to do good things or bad things. This is based largely on a cost-benefit analysis. How many times do we do that, though? Are we doing things that we know that is wrong so that we get a benefit? I'm driving at 80 on the motorway so that I get there a bit quicker. I'm telling a lie so that I don't get into trouble. A woman may want a divorce so that she might be happy one day. So that is dangerous. It excuses sin. It is just not good enough for us. So in therapy, people are encouraged to reorder their thoughts. So a therapist would be saying to Paul, why do you say you're wretched? What are the things you struggle with? Then the therapist would encourage Paul to reframe his thoughts, to think that actually he was a good person and to focus on the good things he did rather than the temptations and to leave feeling a bit better about himself. What are the things that you struggle with that means that you do things that you don't want to do and afterwards you might regret and wish that you hadn't given in to that temptation? Are there habits at work in your life which you find difficult to break? Are there things which you used to do but now no longer do or do much less? And how do you respond if you do really mess things up? I think for all of us, we've got different answers to these questions. But while a therapist might encourage us to minimise the seriousness of our sin or to try and gradually reduce its frequency or severity, we know as Christians that that's not enough. We need to cut sin out. For me, the things I struggle with the most are largely about how I use my time and the distractions around me. Particularly, and I'll be honest, doom scrolling. Spending a long time on social media looking at what's going on and actually So doom scrolling. Yeah, I feel pretty rubbish after, about myself after spending a long time um, reading about what's going on in the world. I always try and get my point across. People that know me will say that. Um, and I often judge people who might have a different viewpoint. Sometimes it's a poor choice of words with my family or saying something on the spur of the moment. As my daughter reminded me the other day, once you say it, you can't put the words back in the bottle. It's an ongoing struggle between what I should do and what I should not do. When I first became a Christian in my early 20s, I used to go out mainly with a bunch of non-Christian friends. I pretty much carried on as normal, normal for people of my age at that time. I might drink a little bit too much. I might behave in other ways which were considered normal by everyone else. And then the first birthday that I had, after I'd started going to church regularly, I decided to invite a bunch of my new Christian friends to the pub alongside my old friends from university. What a great idea this seemed at the time. What a great opportunity to share the gospel. Everyone turned up, Christians on one side of the table, non-Christian friends on the other, and me in the middle. Heavier drinkers on one side, light drinkers or teetotalers on the other side, and me in the middle. 
two groups, two conversations, and all night, me in the middle. So many decisions. Should I have that extra drink? Should I go on to the club, or should I laugh at that inappropriate joke, or not? So I had to decide whether or not to carry on as normal with my old friends while not embarrassing myself in front of my new Christian friends, or at the same time not making my old friends think I'd joined some kind of sect. It was highly awkward. I was caught in the middle. And I think we're all caught in the middle from time to time, aren't we? And the question is, who are we really? Who are we trying to impress or fit in with? What are we really like? Paul's message is undoubtedly that we're all sinners in need of rescue. We can't defeat sin on our own. In verse 24 and 25 he says, Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What are we really like? We aren't two personalities like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. When I was researching this talk, I actually found out more about that story. Originally, I thought Jekyll would have been the bad one and Hyde was the good one. But actually, Hyde was the one who was called that because his, his sinful nature was hidden and it was only revealed from his darkest instincts. So what are we really like? We aren't two personalities. We're governed by one law, God's law. And, we're not, and we don't change that depending on who we're with. Our character isn't divided up depending on whether the angel or the devil has allowed a voice. Yes, we are wretched and we're aware of our sinful nature that will control us if we let it. It's an ongoing battle. But the good news is that we have a saviour. We can delight in God's law and cry out for joy at the salvation of Christ. As humans, we might struggle. And as Christians, we know that we don't struggle in vain and that all of our sins, past, present and future, are forgiven by the blood of Christ. Who are we really? At the end of the next chapter, Paul says there can be no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ Jesus. So practically, whatever you struggle with, remember that it's forgiven. We don't need to hide. In that wonderful hymn that we're about to sing, we aren't hidden in our sin but our own lives are hid with Christ on high. When we look up and see God there, he's made an end of all our sin. And how wonderful is that? You might want to pray. You might want to talk to God about it. Perhaps talk to a trusted Christian friend or counsellor. But always remember, as Paul goes on to say, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God through Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this chapter and these words of Paul. Let us remember that you love us unconditionally, that through Jesus our sins are forgiven. We are ransomed and we are restored. Let us remember that there is no condemnation and through your amazing grace our chains are gone and we seek to live lives that are worthy of you in every way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.